Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Today, I am talking with Jonathan Bates. Many of you know him as co-host with Drew Breezy on ComCenter, a new show on the Failure to Stop channel. Together, Drew and John break down incidents through the lens of law enforcement, dispatch, and 911 call takers. Unlike a 30-second clip you'll see in the news, ComCenter brings you the whole incident from all perspectives. The law enforcement response and the 911 and dispatch calls that led up to it. ComCenter airs live on the Failure to Stop YouTube channel Thursday evenings at 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 5 Pacific. If you can't watch it live, the show reposts on YouTube and airs as a podcast on all podcast networks. Today, I'll be talking with John about ComCenter, the show, but also what it's like to work in a real ComCenter because John is a 911 call taker and dispatcher. We'll also be talking about John's six and a half years as a correctional officer in a state penitentiary prior to his work in dispatch. John sheds light on the importance of both these professions in our greater law enforcement community. He shares his experience with a mixture of humor and emotion, and he shares insights that are compelling and inspiring. As I do with law enforcement, I also want to shed a light on the real stories of these two professions. These are true first responders who have their own level of trauma, their own rewards, and importantly, their own contribution to society as a whole. John, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm kind of excited to get you all to myself because usually I'm just, the only way I could talk to you is in the chat, so the, on the, the episode. Yeah, this should be easier with all, without all the other noise. <laughs> I also appreciate you referring to me as the co-host of Cop Center. Um, I've, it's been made clear to me many times that I'm sort of an interchangeable part, an underling, someone that should not be uh, mentioned so that when I am replaced, no one can tell. <laughs> now, who would tell you that? Uh, that was Drew Breezy who told me that. He oh. actually wakes me up with a phone call every day to remind me how dispensable I am. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. <laughs> um, for those who don't know or may already know, Failure to Stop was created originally by Mike the Cop and Eric Tanzi. That's correct. Uh, I was a fan actually from day one. They they had launched a podcast in 2021, which was at the height of sort of the anti-police sentiment, the George Floyd movement. Everything was sort of at a fever pitch. And for me, it was a great relief because even though I'm not a police officer, I'm a dispatcher, morale was at an all-time low. And I, the first time I ever spoke to Eric Tanzi, I told him how much I appreciated everything he was doing. And he's sort of, a, he's modest to a fault in terms of what he's doing for police officers, dispatchers, and first responders. But uh, he cheered me up quite a bit and really helped my morale. And that has always been sort of the center of why I will do anything to help the guy because he helped me so much. Well, that's, that's awesome. I'll add, so folks aren't confused, Mike the Cop uh, has left Failure to Stop. He left to focus on his foundation called the 10-7 Project, which you can find online for more information. And our friend Drew Breezy now co-hosts with Eric on the Friday flagship breakdown show. Failure to Stop has also expanded to include what I'll call a family of shows, which I will be sure to mention before we close today. We're here to talk about one of those new shows, and that's ComCenter. I do think it's one of the most captivating shows out there. And I think it's a lot of it is because 
In some episodes, you show the police response first and then play the 911 dispatch calls, giving us the perspective on what those officers have been dispatched to, what they think they're responding to, and is it different from what they've been told it is. And then sometimes you do the reverse where you play the 911 and dispatch calls first and then cut to the body cam and police response. And then sometimes you let the drama play out just through the 911 calls. Each setup really provides its own level of suspense. And, and it's informative. It's, it's stuff people really need to know. I think it, re it really helps people understand the totality of a police response. Uh, we have been trying to sort of fit into the mold of failure to stop. And on that podcast, what they normally do is what they call a big case breakdown. Well, they'll take something that you're familiar with in the news, ripped from the headlines, in other words, and retired police officers will sort of examine all the issues from admittedly a pro-police standpoint. Uh, they feel like they're the answer to the mainstream media's narrative about the police always being the bad guy in every situation. They will be fair, though. They have called out police officers and brought them to task for any time that they failed to meet their own professional standards, especially right now in light of the Tyree Nichols case. You, what police officers are saying all over and not being heard is that no one hates a bad police officer more than a good police officer. So that's sort of the line that they've always been doing since day one. They have taken some controversial stances like, let's wait for all the facts when it came to Ovaldi. You have to appreciate the fact that they're not going to, you know, give you a gut reaction and jump on a bandwagon or engage in groupthink like so many other agencies do where they copy and paste whatever the narrative or whatever the story is about the latest police outrage. Right. Well, I found Drew before I found failure to stop and I have interviewed him for my podcast He's also um, been kind enough to have me on as sort of a guest on Failure to Stop, where we did a segment on media bias and the impact on officer safety. And then we also did a breakdown on the officer deaths that occurred here in the greater Seattle area in late 2009. So for those, most of those listening, I started working with law enforcement 12, 13 years ago. And what you were just saying about Failure to Stop starting at the height of the riots, I started this in September 2020, when Seattle was basically burning to the ground. So it's, uh, I guess we all kind of had a desire to, you know, help prop up law enforcement. It was something similar happened, I'm sure, in, in my generation, where we had 9-11, which was, you know, egregious and horrifying, but also mo motivating, where we saw this terrible thing happen. And uh, all of us went into action and it changed our lives in different ways, whether that was enlisting in the armed forces or if it pushed me towards a law enforcement oriented career or, or whatever. And this is sort of the same thing. It's a direct assault on law enforcement that is at once sort of daunting, but also very motivating um, for you and for failure to stop to go out there. And as you say, tell the stories of police officers that don't make the news, but mm. also to give the vantage point of police officers who are silenced by their agencies and uh, by other factors that keep them from saying what they need to say or what they would have to say about any kind of police incident. Right. Interestingly, I lived in New York City during 9-11, and it was the reaction. I always say it's the first time I've ever seen law enforcement thanked for anything. And so it kind of was the seed that was planted to bring me to where I am now. So it sounds like what you're saying is that in a way 9-11 influenced the career path that you took. 9-11 happened when I was in 
high school. A year after 9-11, I graduated and it was time for me to go to college. And to be honest, I didn't really have a good idea of what I wanted to do. I was interested in in some criminology and some criminal psychology and kind of the high-minded stuff in criminal justice. And, you know, I originally had very high goals about what I wanted to be. You know, there's this certain glamour of the criminal of psychological profiler in the FBI. And that was what I sort of thought was interesting. And then when I realized I'd have to go to school forever and a day to be eligible to be an FBI agent, I'm like, well, I don't really want to want to do that. But so I pursued criminal justice in college and that opened the door and uh, got me thinking about some other things that directly relate to where I am now. I know some people don't consider corrections law enforcement. When I did my first project out here in Seattle, I will tell you that there was an officer who's made it a point to tell me that corrections officers are part of the family. I don't know if it felt that way to you, but can you tell me what drew you into corrections as a career? I graduated from college with a degree in criminal justice, and I was working in retail at the time. And what I was doing was loss prevention. So there was some overlap there. There was interface with the criminal justice system, but it was ultimately very, very unsatisfying because what I was pursuing was business viability rather than, you know, rights and wrongs. You know, we would make a decision on whether or not to apprehend a shoplifter on whether or not that was a good business decision. And that wasn't really something that really motivated me. I understood it, but I didn't have a passion for that. So I went to the Department of Corrections because that's just a place where a lot of other people start. And I wasn't sure I was ready to be a police officer. I had done a ride along with the highway patrol and I just didn't really get it going for me either. And so I kind of kept an open mind and I, I went to the Department of Corrections. And I will say that correctional officers not being considered law enforcement, I understand the reason for that. There's so many reasons for that, but I would say that if you think a, a correctional officer is not a law enforcement officer, you're technically correct, but you also really don't understand their job. Inside a penitentiary, you have however many people you have. It's the same thing as a city, except no one can leave. Everyone there's a felon. And all the crimes that occur in your community happen every day inside the penitentiary. Correctional officers are called to respond to theft. They're called to respond to rape allegations, assaults, murders. They really respond to a lot of the same things that police officers do. And frankly, the rules that they enforce are a lot like law enforcement. In many cases, they do enforce the law. One aspect in which it's unlike police officers is that felons incarcerated inside the state penitentiary have diminished civil rights. So there's not concerns about writing warrants. Um, You're not really worried about due process, Fourth Amendment. What you are mostly concerned about is the Eighth Amendment the prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment because there are certain factions that say almost anything you do as a correctional officer is cruel and unusual. Hmm. Really? At, at our facility, at one point, the ACLU came through and did an audit, and they decided that in our disciplinary unit, it was cruel and unusual that the inmates there did not have access to television. So <laughs> we installed televisions in the entire section and put it on the weather channel for them. <laughs> Which I thought may, might have been cruel and unusual because we're telling them about the weather and they're not allowed to go outside. So right. they're watching the weather channel and it's sunny and 80 and they can't go outside. I, I don't know. Well, oddly enough, I know a little bit more about corrections than I do certainly than dispatch. I filmed and did interviews in a jail here 
it was eye-opening. Now, so I did learn that jail is temporary, charge up to a year, or you're waiting for trial. Prison, you've been charged, you're serving out your sentence. So a penitentiary is equal to a prison? Penitentiary is equal to prison, um, right. Uh, you have a convicted felon, someone who's facing, you know, one years to life in prison or a death sentence in the state. And so their attitude towards their situation becomes different once it's more or less permanent. I mean, a lot of the guys are on appeals and a lot of them are working towards parole, which can change things. But some guys are just there for life. And that, of course, changes their approach to daily living and following the rules and what kind of inmate or person they're going to be. And it makes a lot of them really dangerous. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, and the other thing is that I don't know what everyone is aware is that you don't, you are not armed. We are and we aren't. Inside the walls when I started, which was quite a while ago now, we did not carry anything. While I was there, many changes were made and in, in the administration turned over so that the warden that had been there for 10 to 20 years finally retired. We also had a rising number of incidents and assaults. And so at one point, they finally issued us pepper spray. Mm. We would carry firearms on certain posts. So if you're in a tower outside, you're outside the perimeter, you would carry an AR-15 rifle. You would carry a less lethal shotgun, which can fire beanbag rounds or other rounds. We would have other less lethal options that were deployable, like if we had a riot or another incident. And we also would carry sidearms on occasion, which was a Smith & Wesson uh, revolver uh, 38 special, which is sort of a, a very old school sidearm to be carrying in law enforcement. While I was there, they did switch over to the Glock 17, which is a easy to clean, easy to manage, easy to operate, semi-automatic pistol. So when you say, again, I guess the big difference for me when I was filming in the jail, it does. I'm sure it doesn't have the energy that a prison has. These people are potentially getting out or they don't know what their fate is. So when you say they're dangerous, I can imagine what you mean, but tell me what you mean. Well, a lot of these folks can't make good long-term plans, which is why they're in a penitentiary to begin with. And sometimes they're dealing with the frustration of the day and they don't remember that they have long-term goals like you know, going a certain amount of time without getting any major disciplinary write-ups and, and other things like this, which can affect them in a parole hearing. Mm. And some of them are very just committed to doing their time. And so for them, life outside the prison walls is something of an abstraction or something that they don't even think about. They have their own life here and now inside the walls, and they play by the rules of what it means to be in prison. Tribalism amongst inmates, gang stuff, uh, violence. They live where they live, and they have to do what they have to do to survive there. And for different inmates, that means different things. For some of them, that means being very discreetly and closely cooperative with secret security or special security or anyone who's doing sort of um, high-level investigations into the goings-on of a prison, which actually goes on in any any major prison all the time. There's always intelligence gathering for anything that could be going on, whether that's gang activity or whatever. Then there's other guys who like to be uh, loud and boastful, and they kind of have a very dramatic presence about them, and they sort of create a mystique of power and danger and intimidation in order to protect themselves from actually ever having to do anything. In the gang worlds, you have shot callers and people who will kind of do their bidding. 
Then you have inmates who uh, are frankly just af- afraid and they will spend most of their time keeping to themselves. And then there's other inmates who just sort of seem checked out to all of that almost political type prison things. And they just do their time and they aren't a problem and you never get to know who they are and they eventually leave and you put somebody else in their cell and you, you don't give them much more thought. Hmm. And so when you talk, when you say felon, I mean, this could be someone who is a violent offender or it could be someone not violent. They all get put in the same. They do. They get all, all get put together, but there is a process by which they're sort of sorted out. So there's different codes by which you will sort of assess someone. So the Prison Rape Elimination Act, or which would you, you would call PREA, everyone gets a certain score based on their likelihood to be a perpetrator of prison rape or a victim of prison rape. And that's one aspect by which we will separate them. They also have scores about which they're uh, just likely to be violent or nonviolent towards other people in general. There's also certain aspects about their case, what they were charged with that determine their custody status. For example, you would not have someone who's convicted of serial killings. You would not have them in a minimum security unit with the people who are on work release who leave every day right. to go to Applebee's to cook your steak and then come back. So everyone sort of gets sorted out, goes to different levels, minimum security, medium. There's different levels of that maximum. And then, of course, you have your top level offenders, your people on death row who are essentially locked down for 23 hours a day and they don't have contact with any other inmate or they should not. Another thing that administrators and the public don't understand is that you you say, well, that person's in solitary confinement. You know, they don't have access to anyone. Things go wrong. And I have seen people meet each other who should never have had physical contact with each other. Meaning? Meaning they're in the same room together without other correctional officers or whatever. Um, gosh, it's hard to explain. But like uh, doors can malfunction, doors can be forced. And so you can have a closed section where you would have, say, 30 cells. And you have someone who's out in that section and they're having their rec time. I mean, they can walk around or whatever. And then someone else's door gets open and they're fighting. Oof. I don't know how much detail you want me to go on that, but some of the scariest and most uh, blood curdling things I have ever seen were situations like that. Do you want to tell me? I have seen, I guess, probably one of the worst things I ever saw was that exact situation where there was an inmate who was, I guess you would call him especially mouthy. He was, he had an annoying voice and he liked to tell everyone what he thought all the time. He was sort of a, what we would call a door warrior, almost like a keyboard warrior, but he's safe behind his door. Well, the door got opened or there was, it went into what you would call a tamper mode or a malfunction or it was otherwise unsecured and it was forcible. And he, he was beaten on the floor and he had a television smashed over his head and he was disfigured so badly he never looked the same again. And it totally changed his personality. After that, he became a very quiet person. That is awful. Not only for him, but for you to have to see that. You are confirming what I fear prison life is. What's the ratio of prisoners to corrections officers? And then when something like that goes down, you basically have to call in just like cops, you have to call backup, right? So the answer would be hundreds to one, but it depends on the situation. So on a, on a, it depends on your post and it depends on various other factors. Where I would work for most of my time as, as an officer before I was promoted was I would work outside in the rec yard. So we would release entire units out into the yard outside 
and so I, I would was my job to count them too. And we could sometimes have you know 100, 200 guys out there, and it would be in me and one other officer. And then you have another officer who's posted in a car or a tower or towers. They they'll be armed, which is sort of a deterrent if nothing else. And what do you do if they fight? Well. It depends on the context, but number one, I guess, is you wouldn't necessarily throw yourself into the middle of that, although I certainly had done that before. You call for backup on the radio. Basically, it's it's very simplified. You just have a code three emergency wherever you're at. So when I started, it was uh, all officers just go except for one to stay on the unit or post that they're on, and everyone sort of secondary or extra would go to that. And then before I left, they changed it so that every shift had sort of a I guess so you would almost call them a crash squad where you had seven or eight officers who would be designated responders to something like that. And they would also be the same officers that would do a cell entry or things like that. So I was there long enough that the process changed. And as a correctional officer, one thing that I really liked about it was, is that if you were in trouble, people did come and run in. That was something that did give you some comfort. Looking back on it now, I don't know if that was false comfort or not. The idea that correctional officers run any prison is not true at all. The inmates do run the prison, and it's all with the, the sort of the tacit agreement that they're going to do what the officers do. It's just a sheer numbers game. Um, so when you when you look at a place and it hasn't had a ride in a very long time, I mean, you could say, well, they must have really good policies there, but they could also just have the best luck. Could just be the grace of God. Um, I remember talking to officers at the time I worked there, and they say, you know statistically a riot occurs about every 30 years and we're overdue and it's a wing and a prayer that nothing happened today sometimes i would think about work and i would get ready for work and i would i would make decisions and i would think about what would happen if i was taken hostage or if i was assaulted <laughs> or what that would be like and it all sort of became normalized to me until the end of my career when i sort of realized that every single day i was paid to sit on a time bomb and once i came to that realization the clock was ticking on me for me to get out of there. Yeah. Well, and I do want to acknowledge what you had said, that this was a trauma for you to see this man beaten to, to this extent. There's a, uh, these people and really all people, because they're the difference between someone on the outside and being inside the penitentiary is a matter of administration, you know, going through a trial. The, the kinds of violence that people are capable of doing, not only to others, but to themselves, would surprise you. Um, police officers are certainly aware. But one thing I, I would take from that and, and tell someone is that when someone is an offender in society and they go to prison, we sort of uh, wash our hands of them and think the situation is over. That person belongs in prison and we can all move on as a society. That person goes to prison and they continue committing crimes against other people inside the state penitentiary and against correctional officers. There really is no end when they go inside the walls. They continue to commit the same crimes. And so it was always frustrating for me when I would hear that someone, you know, is in prison and that's that's the end of the story. I'm like, no, they're going to continue being themselves and doing what they want to do. They're just going to do it to a people who choose to be there or other people like them. It sounds like hell. I really loved it. <laughs> Are you I was serious? really I was really good at it, I, I, which sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but I felt good about my job every day because I because I felt like I was good at it. I did say that when I was in uh, my interview for promotion is when you do anything and you do it well, it gives you a good feeling. 
And most days I left feeling very good about the job that I had done because I was I was invested in what I did. I cared about what I did. I cared about doing the right thing. I cared about doing what I was supposed to do. I cared about leaving, going home with your shift and everyone is safe. When I was a shift commander, I told them that that was the most important thing. We actually did have a line of duty death while I worked there. And after that, especially, I said, like, I have worked the day where we started a day and we ended a day with one fewer officer than we had when we started. Make sure you're making good decisions. Talk to me, rely on each other, call for backup. Resolve all doubt in your favor was sort of a, a mantra that I always tried to use. That Because correctional officers are having thousands and thousands of interactions with inmates every day. The inmates are always judging you. They're always trying to figure out what kind of officer you are. They're always looking for opportunities for breaks in the normal routine, the normal schedule, someone they can manipulate, someone they can control. They basically spend every moment of every day listening to you, what you're doing, and trying to figure out how they can exploit it, either for a small gain or a large gain. And in the case of our line of duty death, that's exactly what that was. We had two people who were watching our processes for a very long time, and they saw a vulnerability, and they exploited it. How did this officer die? Um, he, he was um, he was beaten with a pipe and suffocated with uh, plastic wrap. That poor guy. How did they get to him? How did they get him alone? He worked on a post by himself, and there was a, a what you would call a ring out or basically a large movement of inmates. They were leaving the facility where he was at, and they were going inside for lunch. And so a lot of the other people in the area had left the area. He was checking the area to make sure it was secure so that we could go to a account where every single person is back in their cell and we can account for everyone. And it was sort of during that time uh, where they, most of the inmates had left the area that he was still by himself securing the building that he was accosted. And this is someone you knew? I knew him. I had worked with him for a while. I did not know him very well because he had worked there for a very, very long time and I was still sort of new. And there's a division between sort of the old guard and the new guard, you know, no pun intended. And uh, I just didn't work the same shift as him for the most part. I worked sort of the, the afternoon to night shift and he was he was a morning guy. And we had, we had very just different roles to where I didn't have a lot of reason to be on his post, but everyone knew who he was and a lot of the people who have were there at that time who knew him well have gone on to retire now. But it, it affected indelibly a lot of my coworkers who happened to be there at the time, some of which had the same seniority as me. They were never really the same again after that. That's, that's devastating. How does, the, how does the call come out? Did they, because I know there was a murder here of a corrections officer, and it, I guess she wasn't answering her radio, which was how they knew something had happened. This was an escape attempt. So these inmates mm. took his uniform and attempted to escape, and uh, he, they were not recognized when they approached the perimeter. And a fist fight ensued, and we had other officers injured attempting to apprehend them. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I haven't thought about that or talked about that in a long time, and I realized that uh, I used to think of that as one of the worst days of my life, even though I wasn't, I didn't arrive until after the suspects had already been arrested and taken to jail. They were arrested at prison and taken to jail was that situation. Um, but it was the aftermath of being that. Um, I was actually, I found out before the the captain that was on duty and I had, I informed the captain that he had passed away and it was just uh, really tough. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, that's really hard. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that you enjoyed it and you took pride in what you did. When you say you were good at it, what do you mean? Inmates are always knew where they stood with me and they knew that I'm, this almost sounds like a movie, but I was incorruptible uh, with the inmates. They knew that there was, they, they could not out talk me. They could not outmaneuver me, uh, that I was going to enforce the rules. I, I just took, I took pride in being an officer that cared. There's so many officers who were lackadaisical or they wouldn't go out of their way to, uh, confront someone if they didn't have to, because certainly the path of least resistance to just look the other way. But I usually was not that guy. On another occasion, I had to escort an inmate back to his housing unit because he was hesitant to go inside the classroom for recovering sex offenders, and he didn't want to be seen doing that, so he was loitering. So we gave him plenty of opportunities like commit or go back to your unit. Well, I take him back to his unit because he doesn't want to be seen going in there. And we got kind of on a long stretch of hallway where it was just me and him, and it's very, very, very unusual to be sort of alone with an inmate even for a few seconds. And he said to me, you know, a lot of officers here, they just do eight in the gate. They do what they have to do and they go home. But you, you're like above and beyond. And I said, thank you. And he goes, I didn't mean that as a compliment. I'm like, I'm taking it as such, you know, that was, that was sort of my, my view. And I, I enjoyed committing myself to doing what I was supposed to do. Instead of shirking things, I sort of leaned into that. That's great. I, the corrections officers I spoke to said something similar where, you know, the safety and security of the prisoners is their responsibility. Treat them with respect. You know, call them Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, not hey you, you know. And a lot of them have said they would see people, you know, prison again, different than jail, but when they'd get out of jail and they'd see them on the outs, you know, that they'd come up and thank the officer for how they treated them. So this perception of corrections officers as brutal or unkind or uncaring, I think is completely unfair. It's completely unfair, but also somewhat un somewhat fair. I will say that I did know some officers that just didn't belong there, that they were there because they couldn't get hired somewhere else. So they were there strictly for the paycheck. And they were there because they were failed applicants for a police department. That's certainly the reputation of correctional officers is sort of the dregs or the, the leftovers of anyone that applies to a police department. But I knew a lot of correctional professionals who were really, really good at that. And I, and I knew that they would succeed in that environment where police officers would not succeed. And I did have an inmate approach me just one time. And he, uh, he was an interesting guy. He kind of reminded me of John Coffey from the Green Mile. He wasn't sweet or innocent, and he certainly wasn't uh, he wasn't slow, but um, he was a, a gentle giant. I can recall taking him out of the facility once and for an x-ray on his wrist. And then in, in my stupidity, I did not bring oversized handcuffs with me to put back around his wrist with the cast on it. So I was just like, please don't run away. And he goes, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. You know, he ba we basically kind of let down, laid down our cards on the table and we acknowledged that like, I had made a, a grave error in terms of like trying to keep custody of this guy because he's bigger and stronger than me. But he was trying to figure out his life and trying to get things better. And he was actually in prison for aggravated assault on law enforcement. So, <laughs> but he worked in the infirmary and he actually took care of a lot of the inmates who were ill or geriatric or in palliative care inside the prison. And I ran into him once and he told me that his life was, uh, was getting, was, was great. And his eyes lit up and he was happy to see me. And, uh, 
he told me how much money he was making and it was a lot more than me. And I was, <laughs> I was just happy for him. Uh, but you know, you know, he had been making 25 cents an hour at one point inside the prison and he was just happy that he had, he had kind of made it. Was he, had he made it? Was he, did he, was he just a better criminal than ever? And he was just not getting detected. I don't know, but it was a friendly interaction that we had and I didn't mind having it. other times when I saw inmates out and about, uh, it was kind of, uh, you know, we leave each other alone situation. I'm, I'm not going to say anything, but I don't know. Uh, there's, there, there's good and bad with, with, with all of that. And everyone's different. Well, I could talk the whole episode about this, but I do want to get to dispatch and call taking and what you're doing now. What led you to go from corrections to dispatch? I thought I was good at talking to people. And when you're a corrections officer, if you're any good at it, then you're certainly good at talking to people. A friend of mine who was a correctional officer left to go to uh, the local 101 agency. And one day we had breakfast and we were just kind of talking about what his life was like now. And um, I thought that working at 911 would be a great way for me to help good people instead of just dealing with the constant negativity of inmates and that I could use the power of talking and listening all the time to do what I do and maybe assume a little bit less personal risk, um, especially in light of that line of duty death. And so what's the process? I mean, how do you apply? I know what it is for law enforcement. Do you test? Do you, uh, obviously they train. It is different everywhere you go. So I work at a smaller agency that's actually not where I live. Um, If you were to work at a bigger agency, you could expect to go to a similar process through what law enforcement is going to do. Series of interviews, oral boards, starting with a phone call. They'll do various different types of tests with you. And then so you'll still sort of go through like a probationary period. There's literally an, an, a hearing test. You know, they have to make sure that you're physically capable of doing the job. Uh, keyboarding standards, you know, to mm. make sure that you can type. <laughs> um, you know, so every agency kind of has their own own different thing. A lot of agencies will, they'll have a 911 dispatcher in the interview. And correctional officers can recognize their own and so can 911 dispatchers. So You'll see someone and you'll know from their personality, their disposition, the way that they carry themselves, the way that they speak, whether they'll be a good fit. And sometimes it's like any other job where maybe this person doesn't necessarily have any aptitude for this job whatsoever, but they have a really positive attitude. And that's what our agency needs. They have a lot of trainability, a lot of learnability. Maybe they don't have a lot of ideas. They don't bringing that in here with them and that they're really trainable. And training is such a long process that it really never ends. I'm still learning things all the time about how to be a 911 dispatcher. I guess larger agencies have dispatchers and 911 call takers, and they are not the same. But some agencies, you you can do either job. I do both. Uh, in some ways, the jobs are separate, but in other ways, it's almost like a, a process of professional growth or development. Like you would start as a call taker, someone that answers the phone, asks certain questions, gets certain information. And then a dispatcher is either reading that information or also listening to the call. Mm. And they're on the radio at the same time or soon thereafter. And so for other agencies, you know, you're a call taker or a dispatcher, but as you grow professionally as a call taker, you can become a dispatcher. You sort of, once you get your time in and you understand other processes that are going on, because so many things go on in a 911 dispatch center. It's not just all answering the phone and talking on the radio. You're also, you're taking inquiries about warrants. You're doing NCIC entries. You know, there's so many administrative and criminal justice tasks that go on there to apprehend all of that and to do it well and to do it at a standard high enough to where 
you won't, I mean, the joke is that you won't get anyone killed. It takes a, a long time. And so it's sort of a, a journey of apprenticeship where you become a journeyman and then a master over time. Interesting. Tell me what people don't know about the job. That when you're not talking to them through a recorded device, there's a lot more stress going on than uh, than what we make it look like. We make it look easy. Uh, it's almost a comparison to a duck gliding across the surface. You know, it just looks like a graceful laid back creature, but it's paddling its little butt off underneath. Mm. And any good dispatcher is going to sound calm and collected on the phone or on the radio as well. Uh, but when that radio closes or the phone is hung up, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of work going on and there's a lot of stress going on that a professional 911 dispatcher will not put out on the phone or the radio. It sort of stays inside that comm center and uh, it's a high pressure situation a lot of the time. And when you listen to critical incidents and things like that, uh, I'm always amazed every single time when something terrible is happening and the 911 dispatcher sounds like everything is routine. Because admittedly, I will tell you, I've had situations where my stress can be heard on the radio. And it's something that I have to constantly work on as a professional because people don't want to hear my stress. People don't want to hear the negativity that I have with me sometimes. And so in a sense, you're expected to bottle that up. So you have to find a way to to vent about that or to release it in other ways. And uh, we're just constantly dealing with emergencies and bad things happening all the time to various degrees. And you could say, well, not every call is, is a true emergency, but it is to the person who's talking to you. Right. Right. So you've got the trauma of trying to stay calm. You have the trauma of what you're listening to. Are there stories you would want to share of calls that you've taken that have, we could do a tough one and we could do a happy one? Sure. I mean, because it because it really does run the whole gamut. I mean, you, you know, people want to know what the question always is, what's the craziest 911 call you've ever taken? I'd be like, do you want to sleep tonight? Like, maybe <laughs> this isn't a, the topic for casual conversation. So, you know, uh, so I, I dispatch kind of out in the middle of nowhere in the countryside. And sometimes we get city folk who don't understand that there's not full services out, out there. And so I've had it before where someone will call me because there's a badger in their culvert. And oh. it's like, well, your house is in their natural habitat. So, you know, they're already outside. So I'm not really sure where you would want the badger to be. Also, like, here's an approach you could take. You could go to sleep and it might be gone in the morning. <laughs> and, you know, maybe we don't have to do anything. You know, every number one dispatcher probably has like a, a little folder in their mind of some of the, the craziest or most unusual calls. And it's sort of uh, interesting how... Uh, there's a great number of people out there who are just really not sure what to do in life, and, and they'll they'll call us for advice. <laughs> Jeez. Well, you know, I don't want to push you into a direction you don't want to go. So if you don't want to do this, don't. But you know, Drew has talked about people calling with their last will and testament, people calling and committing suicide on the phone, and this is from his experience working in a comp center himself, which he did at the beginning and end of his 29-year law enforcement career. So, you know, anything like that you want to touch on? That's really tough. And I'll tell you that any 911 dispatcher who's done it for any amount of time has those stories. I have not had someone giving me their last will and testament, as Drew describes. It could just be just the difference of the agencies that we work for. He worked for 
Hillsborough County in Florida, which is kind of a big agency and I work for a very small one, but I have had people pass away on the phone with me. Um, sometimes it's, uh, the good way, which is like hypoxia. Like, uh, they just, so they're a, a, you know, a COPD patient and their oxygen supply runs out and they become incoherent. And by the time someone can kind of get in the door and get to them, they've, they've passed away. And that was on the phone with me or, um, a more extreme example, something that like I'm still trying to work through was, is that we had, uh, someone inside a vehicle that, uh, was struck and it caught on fire and he was trapped inside the vehicle. Mm. And while the deputy was attempting to extricate him, um, the deputy is uh, keying up and the deputy's getting smoke inhalation. He was hospitalized for that. And I could hear the man screaming and he told me, you know, tell EMS and tell, tell the firefighters that the patient's on fire. And I've never had to say those words before. So all of a sudden I'm keying up tones, you know, to alert tones to advise whoever's listening that like what you're about to hear is really important. The patient's on fire. And I've just, even as it's happening, it's kind of surreal. You'll sort of disassociate and you have to, cause you're just like, if I don't do this, nobody else will. I'm in a moment where I don't, I can't dial 911. I can't give this to somebody else. I'm the person that's going to make this happen. And you take half a deep breath cause you don't have time for a full one and you push through it and you keep going and you know that you're eventually the situation's going to stabilize one way or another, and that's when you can take your full deep breath. And a 911 dispatcher that's been doing this job for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, their whole their head is filled with those kinds of sounds and those kinds of memories. And what I've been hearing lately from people that have left the job is that while they're working, while they're still in their career, they can ignore those things because have the mindset of the phone's about to ring again. So they, they put those things aside and they move on to the next call. Once they're out of this line of work and there's no more calls, the backlog kind of catches up with them and they have to go through and process all the years of things that they've repressed or bottled up all those years. And uh, it's very, very difficult for 911 dispatchers to deal with. I don't want to take anything away from a firefighter or a police officer because certainly being there and being on scene is its own thing your feelings are valid. Whatever you've got going on is real for you. And I'm not going to say that we're on the same level or in the same arena, or even that it's a competition, but 911 dispatchers, things are happening to them that no one else can understand because no one else does that job. And there's not only no understanding about it because there's no information about it, but there's nothing but misinformation. People's idea of what we do is just very, very far away from reality. And so you'll talk to someone and say, why don't you come down sometime and see what I do? And of course, luck of the draw, they just happen to come on a night where really nothing interesting happens or, or if they're there and you're busy and they can't really understand everything you're doing. I've had a firefighter once they were visiting me and we were extremely busy and the firefighter said like, I don't know how they keep it all straight. And I was listening to him do that while I was doing like 10 other things. So I'm like a I'm like conducting an orchestra and it was nice to hear like a firefighter say that. I don't know if he knew that I could hear him, but uh, just the amount of things that we have going on at any one time, it's, it's daunting, I guess I would say. And I'm not sure how I do it as well as I do it. Um, I was in a comm center for Seattle PD and I can remember being in there and it was just sort of a very eerie feeling looking at all these people and knowing that they were talking to someone who was having a crisis 
you know, as you said, not every call is a top level crisis, but I just, the, it just gave me chills to think what are they experiencing? What is the person on the other end of the line experiencing? And kind of like when I asked Drew, like, what is it like to do a traffic stop when you walk up to that window? I, what is it like when the call starts? I mean, you must know immediately if this is going to be intense or the cadence and the, the tone and the background noises kind of tell you exactly how that call is going to go. Because the first thing you're asking for is the location, really. If you can establish that, everything after that is, it's great stuff. But most of all, you need to know where lo- an emergency is happening. If they're able to respond to you, to tell you their address and get that out, you know, um, you're already, the process is halfway done. I processed a call recently where this person just could not tell me their address. They told me a different address every single time. And it was very confusing. They were actually being assaulted at that time. So I can hear blows landing. Mm. I can hear the other person screaming. And they gave me an address. And this is kind of a uniquely named street. And I'm like, I know it's in this town. So I start sending units to that house. Well, the units get there, meaning the deputies. And they're like, hands up in the air, shrug. There's nothing happening here. This house, maybe that house didn't even exist. And so they like double check that address. And I'm very stressed out because I've already asked, you know, does he have any weapons? Are you injured? Do you need an ambulance? And she's not super cooperative with me, which is understandable, but she's also just, she's, she's very much focused on that other person. And sometimes I have to say, can you ignore him and please talk to me because I'm the person that can get you that help, which is very, very hard to ask someone to do, but also very necessary. So eventually she gives me this street that I know for sure does not exist in my jurisdiction. It's just, it's not a street. And so she starts giving me sort of dead reckoning things like it's across the street from this, you know, gas station, which we also, the name of this gas station we have in every town. And I'm trying to just figure it out. And all of a sudden I realize it's in a completely different town than where I have sent everybody. So all of a sudden I get on the radio and say, no, this is going on 20 miles away. And so luckily I already had, you know, a police officer in that town who was ready to respond. He could hear all that radio traffic. And another deputy who was heading out that way was far, we're going to be probably the last on scene. Well, he could be second on scene to this one. So, I mean, it was, uh, again, sort of divine providence that we had people to kind of get in there and take control of the situation right away. But nothing makes you feel worse when you're doing the absolute best you can and you have a real... I don't want to call it an error because I don't think I made a mistake. But on the other hand, like I didn't have factual information. I didn't have what I needed to to change what was happening on that 911 call. Sometimes if they don't know their address, and it's just crazy to me that people don't know their address because I can remember being in preschool and being taught to always know my address. And you know, you start from there. So you get the address. And then after that, you know that you can intervene on the problem and then you just start working it. You know, depending on on what it is, if it's a medical, you start, you know, trying to assess the patient's condition. If it's some kind of criminal issue, you try try to start establishing, you know, if weapons are involved, if, you know, entry into a building's been made, if someone's being threatened, if someone's already been injured, if someone's fleeing the scene, descriptions of persons, descriptions of vehicles. And eventually it sort of becomes rote to you where you know the things that officers are going to need their, their first five questions, their first 10, their first 20 and uh, you just you sort of keep going and every answer they give you kind of guides how you're going to, which question you're going to ask next. Or uh, you also have an agency 
will provide you with a protocol, which is very, very, very good. It's a good way to keep yourself from being liable and forgetting to ask a question like, do they have any weapons, which is certainly a very important question. I then want to sort of segue into the part where you're, you're giving officers direction on what they're going to. I don't know how to ask the question other than what are the challenges there? I think police officers sometimes have it in their minds of things that they they need to know or they want to know. And those could be legitimate things, but they don't make sense to me. They'll be asking me questions, things, and I'm, and I'm not sure why they're asking me that question. The good thing is, is that prior to the police officers establishing contact with the, you know, the principal parties, you really have to just paint with broad strokes. And that's for the most part, you know, that's good enough. At this address, there's a domestic dispute in progress. There's three people involved. There's two children also in the residence not involved. Uh, there is a weapon in the house. However, it's not in anyone's hand. You know, you know, if you're able and if you're a good 911 dispatcher, if the police have any specific questions that are outside of your protocol or whatever you've already thought of, uh, you're still on the line with them and you can ask, ask the callers this. Um, and then you can re-dispatch. So dispatching isn't really a one-time process for something that's a true emergency. You're dispatching, then you're gathering more information, and then you're then you're dispatching it again, and then you're updating, and then you're advising, and then as you figure things out, you're giving that out again. So on an on an emergency like that, you'll gather you'll gather primary information and then secondary information, and tertiary information. And sometimes you'll find out way too late something you should have known right away. Like, uh, yeah, just so you also, you know, when they get here, just tell them to be careful. There's a down power line. So if they step on that, they'll die. So, you know, sometimes you'll get a random piece of information like that that doesn't really fit into your everything else that you're already thinking of that's obviously critically important. So it's uh, things are coming at you and you have to decide the order at which things get put out and the highest priority things and the things that are going to keep your unit safe. So. You're constantly thinking, what is it like for the person who's calling me? What is it like for the person responding? You're constantly putting yourself in in their shoes to understand the emergency and to understand what's needed to address that emergency. It sounds superhuman. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I just know that it's, uh, it's I almost think of it as like a, a clearinghouse for information. I gather intelligence and then I, I give it out in order of priority or I triage things and it's uh, not something that a computer can do. It's not something that, you know, it, you have to have a, a buffer and a management system between the caller and the police officer. I, I do know there's agencies out there that are so small that a police officer in a car will answer the phone when you call the police. And <laughs> and so that particular agency I'm talking about, I'm like, well, what do you do if you don't have cell phone reception? Like, well, we only patrol where we have cell phone reception. So, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Um, but, uh, I can't imagine, you know, being, doing one thing and then having to take in all, all that information to someone who's responding, a police officers who's driving at high speed to get to an emergency and having them being able to coherently think that through. They need to think about the address and the fastest way to get there, if they, especially if they don't have a GPS or some other guidance and kind of telling them the key things they need to know. It's like, are you showing up to a situation where someone has a gun in their hand, a knife in their hand, or, or what are you going to find them when they get there? What happens if you get them there and you don't know that the guy has a gun or a knife and then it turns out that he does? Well, that's another great point and something that should definitely be talked about is that, you know, 911 dispatchers, a lot of times, and this is just my experience, that's all I'm going to speak to, but it seems like we get a lot of grief for not doing a good job. And it's like, well, we only get told what we get told. We, we can ask questions and you certainly should. You should never say, well, the caller didn't tell me that. Like, did you ask that? But a lot of times they'll give you bad information. 
incomplete information. They'll give you information that only serves their side of it. When people call 911, they think that they're speaking to a police officer, so they're only giving you know their report of you know whose fault it is or who's to blame for this incident. Or sometimes you know how it start all started five years ago when I moved in with this guy and <laughs> pertains to nothing today. And so someone will arrive on scene and they'll find inaccurate information both in medical and in criminal calls and even in fire calls. And it's just well, we do the best we can with what the callers tell us. And the callers have their own interests to protect and they have other interests they're protecting or they're just lying. Any dispatch stories of note that you want to share? I will say that just when it rains, it pours, you know, it's feast or famine, not to throw a bunch of metaphors at you, but I remember that just one of the most ridiculous days I ever had was a four car pile up on a, on a major street. And we got the situation kind of secured and my partner was super frustrated and he needed to go outside and have a smoke real quick. And I just said to him before he walked out, I'm like, please don't leave me. You know that something bad is going to happen when you walk out the door. <laughs> the and he minute, goes, you yeah. got this. You're fine. I'll be back in a, two minutes. Door closes behind him and I'm getting a report of a hot air balloon crashing on that four car pileup. <laughs> and so when he comes back at the door and he sees on our CAD, which is our information management system, aircraft incident, I said, I told you, like this hot air balloon is crashing because you left me. You know, oh it's, it's, almost, it's almost incidental to you making that decision that you needed a break. <laughs> oh, God. Well, that is definitely dramatic. Um, have you had calls where a, an officer needs help? Officer's been shot. Like those calls come to dispatch, correct? Um, I have not had any police officer intentionally insult, uh, assaulted or shot while I have been working in the last eight years at 911. There was another incident where someone, I think, attempted to ram a police officer in the parking lot of a store. So um, we've had guns drawn on, on our deputies and police officers and some some fights, but I only know that for, really from the corrections point of view. Well, there's a part that I do want to cover because it is important. Drew has made it clear to me that dispatcher and 911 call takers are really not treated or appreciated the way they should be. They are classified as clerical staff. And he's talked about how poorly they can be treated, not only by the public, but also by the people they are supporting. Do you want to touch on any of that? Well, police officers, first of all, you got to understand police officers and dispatchers, we have a love-hate love relationship for each other. Every dispatcher kind of gets into this because we're really pro-police and we support those guys. And police officers get into it because they want to be police officers. They don't have dispatchers in mind when they become police officers. But I would really say that our dyad is a lot more like jerks. Excuse me, not jerks. That was a Freudian slip. We're a lot like uh, jocks and nerds where, you know, the, the jocks to the police officers where they're going out and they're running after the guys and they're catching them in there. They're being a badass and we're the nerds where we're figuring out where people live, what are their prior addresses, who are their known associates, what vehicles have they owned in the past, you know, what's our history of contact with this person, where do we think they might be at, what's the list of the phone numbers, where, you know, who's their phone provider. We're, we're kind of the, we're the guys in the chair, we're, the, we're doing the nerdy work of, of law enforcement and to be honest, I feel like mine is the far more interesting or rewarding career. I've never been a police officer, so I don't I don't know. But when I got into being a dispatcher, it never occurred to me to think, 
man, I sure wish I was in that car going, driving to that thing I just sent them to. There was a little bit of that when I started, like, uh, just because I was so used as a correctional officer to running towards the danger the first mm. time I had an incident go off. And I was like, you know, if I jump in my car right now, I could be the first person there and I could probably <laughs> affect a difference. But then I was like, yeah, but no one can replace me, which sounds really <laughs> conceited, but you cannot just have another person come in and sit down at an M one console and do anything and be effective. Yeah. So you do get rewards. What are the rewards for you? I will tell you that, you know, I've been doing this so long, I often don't count my rewards, but I'm I'm in it. I'm in what's going on in something important in society. I'm so glad that I don't go to a job where I'm trying to keep track of the stock on my shelves or making sure that I've emailed that person back or I'm attending this meeting or I'm, you know, trying to adjust this aspect of my profit and loss. Like, if I was not a 911 dispatcher, I know I would immediately miss it because I know there's stuff going on every single day that requires someone who's good at it to be doing it, someone who can handle it to be handling it. And if I was suddenly on the outside, if I didn't know what was going on, I I would feel like I was exiled. I would feel like I was I was no longer a part of something that was important. Uh, I feel like protecting the community and helping people even as irritating or as frustrating or as defeating as this job can be, I'm in the arena and I don't always win every single day, but I, I am doing something important. And for me, I just have a lot of intrinsic motivation that I get from that. And I don't know that all dispatchers are like that. Some of them are just like, this is really steady government work and I'm probably <laughs> not going to get laid off because the 911 calls keep coming. So I'm not <laughs> speaking for everyone, but I'm just telling you what keeps me going every day. And it's that I'm involved in something that really does matter because that drives me. That was the same thing in corrections. You know, corrections dispatch, these things are not glamorous. We don't get recognition as law enforcement or first responders. We don't get appreciated like the police do and the police deserve appreciation. But what we do matters. And before the police get there and after the police leave, dispatch and corrections, they're necessary and um, they're difficult jobs and to be frank with you, and I'm sure maybe even many police officers would agree, they're not jobs that can be done by police officers, but they're a critical part of it. Well, that is a wonderful way to think about it. I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing. I can tell that you're saving lives, and I appreciate you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, I, I hope I'm, I'm affecting some good. You know, we do have so many days where, you know, you just have baloney calls or administrative calls, and it can be uh, frustrating to think that like, uh, you know, nothing that I did today really mattered. But then you'll get a call like uh, my baby is can't breathe and you'll get them to the point where through instructions over the phone, all of a sudden you hear a baby crying. Wow. Yeah, baby's breathing. And that's going to keep me going for 365 more days because I just did something that made a real difference in that family and for that child. And um, that I was able to do that over the phone before anyone could get there to help them in, in, in for a problem that, that couldn't even be solved by an EMT or a paramedic because how long could a baby hold their breath, you know? That's incredible. But I was able to, within seconds, change that situation. I did something that none of those other people could do. Wow. That, that's, that's just amazing. Do you ever wish you could meet those people? You know, uh, <sighs> The first time I ever really thought about it, it was, it was sort of a really sad thing. We had a woman who was killed and the, perpen, the person who killed her fled the scene. And I was part of the investigation 
right after it happened and when he was apprehended, I was sort of just happened to be on shift during those things. And I found out about that poor woman and I was learning about her life through the people that were talking about her. And I just thought she was extraordinary. Like we've truly lost an extraordinary person when she was killed. And I sort of felt something for her, I guess, even though I never knew her. And I thought, you know, should I go pay my respects to her at the funeral? And I just realized there's professional boundaries and, I got to say that for the most part, no, I, I I don't really feel like I want to meet those people because for me, it's the perfect ending to where that child is screaming and crying and they're breathing or that person has the help that they need or that person, uh, you know, some people talk about there not being enough closure, but I, I think I can get enough from that to where I did what I needed to do. I did my part. And that's enough for me. So other dispatchers may feel different. They may they may be more attached or more emotional or or feel like they really want to see the tangible results of their work. But for me, it's on to the next thing. Oh. Well, I can tell you are really good at what you do. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Hopefully I am. Well, I am sure you are. Thank you for sharing these stories. I know it's sometimes difficult to go back there emotionally. Before we wrap, I do want to bring it back to comp center to have an incident broken down like the one in Austin, the one that I submitted to you guys to, to see the full incident, all body worn, all cameras, and then to hear your layer of what was the, the disc, the 911 and the dispatch response. I mean, when you put it all together, it's really fascinating. Uh, you, you basically see how a problem enters the criminal justice system is with a 911 call. A problem exists. Someone dials 911. And we start working on it. I believe a phrase I used in that episode was it's true crime in real time because you're trying to solve a mystery. You're trying to figure out a strange situation as this caller is giving it to you. So their second party to the incident, so your third party, and then you're giving that information to police officers. And then, of course, we also examine the body cam footage of the police officers arising on scene, arriving on scene. How does that compare to what we know? How does what we know help the police officers before we got there? How does it affect the outcome? And so we're kind of marrying together for the first time, I think, uh, what it is like to go when the phone rings until the officers get on scene and get the suspect secured. And uh, it's the most definitely the most exciting part, I think, of of the criminal justice system to a spectator anyway. Yeah. And how do you get your ideas? I mean, I know I suggested that one incident, but you guys just research them. How did they come to you? Drew has a really big brain for research. And he also, he's he's retired. So he spends a lot of his time just, uh, he's so committed to his field and his profession that he's still actively engaged. Right. So he's looking at cases all the time. We, we reach out to, to friends of ours uh, like you and other people saying, you know, what are you interested? In? What do you want to know about? However we can get it. We try to find something that's interesting, provocative. He's got so much experience and I have, you know, about half his experience. And so when we, when we take a case like that, we'll say, well, like your case in Austin, he gave it to me and I'm like, so yeah, we're going to talk about a couple things here. You know, we're going to talk about like, him having a high velocity around in a dense neighborhood, all this stuff that could legally apply to the situation, technically apply to the situation. Yeah, you know, that was an interesting one for me too, because I'm I'm actually a SWAT dispatcher too, which is a subspecialty of being a nine one one dispatcher. And so, trying to figure out all those details was just it was a very very interesting case. And so every once in a while you'll see something like that. I didn't know there was such a thing as SWAT dispatch. You're saying this is a subspecialty. There are some subspecialties for me, you know, like I said, I'm a tactical 911 dispatcher or what you might 
more glamorously call a SWAT dispatcher where I would be during a protracted incident, I would go to a command post, which would be established somewhere close to the incident site. And I would assist the incident commander with certain tactical information that would be coming in, uh, whether that's plotting sniper locations or other information that would be coming in. Basically, a dispatcher is someone who's really good at gathering and organizing and putting out information. An intel coordinator also exists in a hostage negotiation unit. In a good hostage negotiation cell, you would maybe have five to six people. Good to know. And before we uh, wrap, I just want to... So for Com Center on Thursday nights, the other thing I think that's fun about being live is you can call in. Actually, you can call in. I'll put the number in the episode notes. You can call in and leave messages for you. We do take voicemails every single week. So if there's people that are listening on hours when we're not live, they can always call in and leave us a cute message or a fun story. And we love to play those on the air because it's free content for us. You know, that we don't <laughs> have to generate. But we also do encourage people to call in so far. Most of our callers have been people in our quote unquote wolf pack, <laughs> our fan base, the people who are reliably watching us every week. And it's really cool to involve them in the show. We do want uh, a greater number of dispatchers and other people in the field and people interested civilians like yourself to, to call in and, and really engage us on the topic. We, we really like that. I, I also say I like watching live because it, it feels like a family, it feels like a community. You know, it's it's an enjoyable live experience. Our, our fan base, you know, it's funny. I didn't really get to know any of them until this year. The podcast, like I said, has been going for, you know, a year and a half, almost two years. But a lot of them have reached out to me on social media. And, you know, I'm pretty responsive to that because I'm just a normal guy. I'm not really a big deal. And it's fun to talk to them and get to know them and some of their backgrounds. And we have so many dispatchers and correctional officers that are listening to us. I think that they're kind of hyped that someone's finally talking about them a little bit. And yeah. although our comm center is not focused on correctional officers, I'm here to speak to, you know, some of their experiences and, and get them involved. And they're, they're part of the greater law enforcement first responder community, too. And frankly, they also buy ghost beds. So I'm happy to have them. <laughs> well, John, I can't thank you enough for your time and doing this. You are welcome. I, uh, I appreciate that you made the exception for me. I'm, I'm, I, when I was telling people that I was on the podcast on being a police officer, they raised their eyebrows and they're like, but why though? You know, <laughs> like I, I almost don't qualify. <laughs> why? So why would they say that? I'm not a police officer. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, but you're in the family. Um, John, thanks once again. You know, thanks for being a corrections officer. Thanks for being a dispatcher, a 911 call taker. These are roles in our society. We need you. I appreciate you. You're welcome. And thank you for, as a civilian, dedicating the time and energy that you have towards telling these stories. I think a lot of people take correctional officers, 911 dispatchers, police officers for granted. They're just that thing that our taxes pay for, that we forget that they're real people with real problems and that these are challenging times. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It is my goal to make all of you feel seen and heard and appreciated. As I said, Failure to Stop has a whole suite of shows that you must check out. There's Night Shift, the true crime show with Eric Tanzi and Andrea Uplate. There's Last Call with Eric and Josh from Dead Leg Media. 
Comm Center, of course, which we've been talking about today with Drew and John, and the flagship breakdown show on Friday mornings with Eric and Drew, and occasionally some special guests. I'll put all that information in the episode notes, and I'll include the call-in number for Comm Center. As I said, all those shows air live throughout the week and then repost to YouTube and to all podcast platforms. I do want to take this moment to thank you, Drew and John, for your support of my podcast. From doing interviews with me, in Drew's case three so far, to inviting me to record a breakdown with you on Failure to Stop, to your, both of your shout outs during Comm Center. I appreciate your acknowledgement of my commitment as a civilian to law enforcement and that we share the same goals. I also appreciate that you're a very devoted audience, the Wolfpack. They also share their support, whether it's in the chat or on Instagram. Thanks to all of you. Of course, I want to thank each and every one of you who listens to and shares on being a police officer. Your support keeps me motivated to continue fighting the good fight. Thank you all.